0: Today's reading is taken from Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 to 14, and can be found on page 985 of the Church Bibles. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them, and he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children... You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. This is the word of the Lord.
1: And you might like to open the Bible, Matthew 18, which was page 985 as that's what we're going to look at um, this morning. Now, if you are of a certain age, you'll remember Chuck Coulson. He was President Richard Nixon's hatchet man at the time of the Watergate scandal. Tricky Dicky, as uh, the president was uh, known as, escaped prison, but his hatchet man, Coulson, did not. But for Coulson, by his own admission, prison was the making of him. In fact, it made him a Christian. During his imprisonment, Colson was transferred to a federal prison at Maxwell Air Base, where he was assigned to work in the laundry. It was ferociously hot in the summer, he wrote, and his job involved Endless sorting of sweat-soaked underwear and brown work uniforms. My assignment to the laundry was also, I'm convinced, another step in my ego-busting process. There was a certain lesson in humility in washing the clothes of other people, not too far removed from washing their feet. He wrote that. In his book Born Again in 1976. In verse 3 here, Jesus says to his followers, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like children, like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So humility is the essential prerequisite for conversion to Christ and entry into his kingdom. For about four chapters in Matthew, we have uh, seen that the disciples have been puzzled. They've not understood how the Messiah that they have conceived of in their heads could possibly suffer like the one that Jesus is talking about. Well, Jesus has told them otherwise, and... uh, Initially, as we've seen, they couldn't take it on board. But I wonder whether the transfiguration, the sight of Jesus transfigured on that mountain before Peter, James, and John, and the news of it to the other nine who hadn't witnessed it, gave them a bit of a kind of boost. Although they were only just beginning to try and reconcile these different images, let alone the Son of Man one as well, um, that whether it made them start to think again, if they were a bit down, that with Jesus, they are going to in some way turn out winners. And that may well have spurred them on to so actually Mark and Luke tell us that they argued, they disputed on their journey who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew records it, verse 1. They'd been arguing about it and Jesus has overheard them because although they have begun to grasp that the Messiah might have to suffer, they'd not yet grasped that humility is required to enter the kingdom of heaven. Entry into the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem's manger square is deliberately by means of a four-foot-high door. The point? Everyone has to stoop before they can enter into the place on earth where Christ entered earth. Samuel Logan Brengel became the first American to be a commissioner of the Salvation Army. In 1887, he sailed across the Atlantic to join up with William Booth's army. Booth spotted that the young Brengel um, harboured a secret ambition to be successful and famous. And Booth said to him, Brengel? You belong to the dangerous classes. You've been your own boss so long that I don't think you will want to submit to Salvation Army discipline. But Booth gave Brengel a chance, even though he had his misgivings. And Brengel went to Lemington Spa to train as a cadet. And his first assigned duty was to blacken the boots of his fellow cadets. Down in the dark underground cellar, with he wrote 18 pairs of muddy boots, a can of blacking and a sharp temptation. Have I, he said, followed my own fancy 3,000 miles in order to blacken boots? And then he recalled how Jesus had washed His disciples' feet. And he was humbled of his pride, something his biographer says he never forgot. Without humility, there is no conversion to Christ. And with no conversion, there is no salvation. John Stott on this point wrote in 1990 in Issues Facing Christians Today. Probably at no point does the Christian mind clash more violently with the secular mind than in its insistence on humility and its implacable hostility to pride. So here Jesus is drawing attention to a child's humility and its lack of concern about social status. Children know that they are dependent on adults and although Jesus was a bachelor he knew children were seldom humble in either character or conduct so it's the humility of their status not their behaviour that Jesus is alluding to so the surest mark of true conversion J.C. Ryle wrote is humility And the disciples have still to learn that whoever humbles himself like a little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The second thing to note in this episode, in verses 5 and 6, is the great sin of putting stumbling blocks in the way of believers. Whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. Christ, you see, sees himself in every Christian. And a person's treatment of Christians is indicative of their regard for Christ. Remember when Saul, just a year or two after Jesus had uh, died, risen and ascended, was going around with uh, a gang of uh, persecutors. And then, on the road to Damascus, he heard... Christ say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Well, Christ had died, risen and ascended just a few years before. But he was in the lives of those Christians that Saul and others were persecuting. So how might we cause such little ones, new Christians, to sin? Well, it's most likely to be in the realms of belief and behaviour if we don't teach. And many of you have opportunities to teach in the small groups that you belong to. The temptation is, rather than to teach truth derived from the scriptures, that we might set people off on a route of misunderstanding. That might be in their misunderstanding of the person of Christ or how it is that God is able to save us through Christ's sacrifice for us. It may also be if we say something is permissible for a Christian when scripture makes it very clear and for very good reasons that heading down certain pathways of behaviour will ensure that we do not inherit the kingdom of heaven. You can look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 for a list. And the third very important realisation from what Jesus is teaching them is in verses 6 and 7, the reality of future punishment after death. We read Jesus saying, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Which is an awful thought. The Romans and Greeks, you won't be surprised, did uh, execute people by drowning. But there's just one example in the writings of the Jewish historian Josephus of the Jews doing so. And that was in the Sea of Galilee put a rope around a millstone. A millstone you know, is one of those things that are about that size and they've got a hole in the middle and uh, then you put it on that way and another one underneath and it goes round and it sort of grinds up the corn and separates the uh, wheat from the chaff. But when they kind of wear out, they use them for all other purposes, don't they? And one, it would seem they might have used it to tie a piece of rope through the hole and tie another piece round someone's neck and to chuck you overboard. And down you go, panicking, thrashing around, but it's useless. Eventually you take so much water on that you pass out and die and rest on the bottom. It is meant to conjure up an awful picture for it's a warning. And again, to reinforce the warning, Jesus uses the deliberately exaggerated images of radical surgery here. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, chop it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Now I suppose, in this litigious generation, and with health and safety regulations, I must tell you that that is hyperbole. It is exaggerated language. We are not meant to take it literally, just so that nobody blames me for saying something and you went and did it, because actually in history, some Christians have done this. They have taken it literally and chopped off all sorts of bits and pieces. Now, both illustrations... Where somebody continues to sin leads, we read, verse 8, to eternal separation from God, excluded, we read, from the kingdom of heaven. And the word hell, verse 9, Gehenna, is a reference to the municipal rubbish dump on the south side of the city of Jerusalem in the valley of Hinnom where the rubbish was burnt and there was so much rubbish generated by the city that the flames, the bonfires burnt 24-7. Again, awful imageries. But there's an even worse reality behind them. Again, we're not to take them literally. You could not imagine how you can have, if you read the Bible in the New Testament, that um, that hell is talked of as outer darkness and fire. Well, just a moment's thought makes you realise that you can't have one, you can't have both of them, can you? It is picture language, but it's picture language about a reality that is worse. Now, we somehow think that all is going to be all right on the night. It's called universalism. But that's the original temptation, if you think about it, that the devil made to Eve. You shall not surely die. Well, the flood in Noah's day and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah years later were illustrative of what God would one day do. He is the God of love and mercy. He has got bucket loads of it but he's also the God of justice. And in our better moments we know that because we cry out for God to exercise justice if somebody has really um, done something awful to us or to our family or those we hold dear and yet they get away with it. And it seems they will get away with it in this life. But no, there is an accounting. God is a God of love, and mercy but also a God of justice and on the cross he manages to reconcile love and justice by his son his innocent son taking the punishment for our wrongdoing so that he can then transfer to us his righteousness and we can be put right with God And Christ speaks about the two eternal outcomes more than anybody else in the whole of the Bible put together. One is awesome, heaven, and the other is awful, hell. And then lastly, we register the value that Jesus places on each individual believer. Verses 12 to 14. Oh, I should say that um, verse 10 is um, most likely that it's about um, angels who who are constantly in the presence of God and have open access to him and yet minister to us. And you might notice there's no verse 11. That's probably because the older manuscripts don't have it, but there are some manuscripts which slip in that verse from Luke 19 about the Son of Man coming to seek and to save the lost. And it's thought that uh, that's a sort of over-eager scribe who thought it would be good to have that in there as well. But it wasn't in the original. Anyway, so that brings us to chapter to verses 12 to 14. If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he is happier about the one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. Now we've seen in this section of Matthew that when Jesus refers to little ones, he's talking about believers. The one who has gone walkabout here is the believer. Now this, of course, is not the same as in a similar but not the same parable of the lost sheep in Luke 15, where the lost sheep is an unbeliever, and the 99 believers there there is rejoicing in heaven over the one who was lost but is found here it is a believer who has gone astray and Jesus wants him back and goes looking for him and does everything he can to get him back as he does with us, he does everything he can if we're genuine believers, if we're one of his flock and we go walk about. He does everything within his arsenal to uh, use to bring us back to him. It was natural for Jesus to draw from pastoral practice and agricultural practice that was all around him that would illustrate part of what his ministry was. It was a way of illustrating divine truths. And Jesus was aware that not everyone everyone who appears to follow him is in fact a genuine follower. You see, they may have got, as the disciples at that point had got, they had got bits of truth, but they hadn't got the whole truth. And a little knowledge, they say, is a dangerous thing. And even having truth that is partial is a dangerous thing because then you don't have a full, balanced picture. And people would have followed Jesus for all sorts of reasons. I mean, he was obviously an incredibly charismatic character without being kind of uh, OTT. I mean, he he did astonishing miracles and was quite understated. He didn't draw attention to himself. He taught with a ring of truth about what he said. He had that kind of um, presence and truth and abilities that of course something special is happening amongst them and they want to be in on it. But they don't as yet fully understand what he's up to. But they think there's enough in what he's up to to want to be in on it but they may have misunderstood. They may have not signed up, as it were, for the real deal. They may have signed up for all sorts of uh, personal advantages. One of them, one of the 12 disciples, was clearly in that category. Judas, who later betrayed Jesus. He wasn't a genuine follower. He'd aligned himself with him for other reasons. And he was the one who betrayed him on that dark night in Gethsemane to the religious leaders who then handed him over to the Romans the next day and had him crucified. What this youth of the lost sheep is meant to teach us is that the Lord Jesus is like a shepherd who uh, cares with enormous concern for every soul who has committed themselves to his flock. Such are precious to him. He will not let them perish. No one shall pluck them from his hands, we're promised in Scripture. As J.C. Ryle puts it, he will lead them gently through the wilderness of this world. He will carry them through every difficulty. He will defend them against every enemy. The saying of which he spoke John 18:9, I have not lost one of those you gave me, will be literally fulfilled. Think of Romans 8:29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now that's a brief summary of a slightly longer chain that you could fill in the links. But ultimately that chain, like the one that Alistair was using this morning, is an unbreakable chain. It is a seamless journey that we've embarked on if we're genuine believers. From the mind of God, through us, and then back to him forever. If we're genuine believers, he will keep us. And what's the evidence of genuineness? Well, one is humility. God searching us out and finding us, on the one hand, engenders deep humility and gratitude, and on the other hand, both peace and assurance for nothing can quieten our fears for our own stability In the Christian life, like the knowledge that our safety depends ultimately not on ourselves but on God's own purpose of grace. Let's pray. Well, thinking of these pastoral metaphors that Christ the Shepherd uses obviously makes us think back to Psalm 23. And if we have uh, genuinely and in humility committed ourselves to the Christ who we understand fully from the scriptures, then this is what he promises to do for us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What he has begun in us, he will complete in him. Amen.